Welcome to another edition of the Hawk Off the Press podcast. I'm your host, Gazette Hawkeyes reporter, John Seppi, and I'm pleased to be joined by Rob Howe from Hawkeye Nation. Rob, thanks for joining me. Yeah, happy to be with you, John. It's uh, kind of a slower week as we were talking about before we started recording in terms of uh, the winter sports being done at Iowa, but uh, football steps right in and, and away we go. Yeah, so let's first start with this past weekend. Not quite an ideal weekend when you have men's basketball getting upset in the first round, women's basketball being upset in the second round, and wrestling finishing third, which usually you'd say third at NCAAs, that's great if you're looking at it really from a distance, but obviously the expectations for that program are to be number one in the country. So kind of a rough weekend. Let's start with women. So that's where you were. It seems like on paper going into it, like, okay, let's start talking about that Greensboro matchup next week against Iowa State. And then Creighton kind of said, hey, not so fast. Yeah, and again, we talked a little bit before we started recording just on the dynamic of that game of Creighton being Iowa's yearly secret scrimmage. And for those folks that don't know, there's a closed scrimmage before each season. They usually do an exhibition that's open at Carver Hawkeye Arena, at least one of those, and then they'll do a secret scrimmage. And the men's do the same thing. Um, the men's have switched around. They've done Bradley before, but oftentimes like a, a, a just a, another school in the region. And it just looked to me like the Creighton kids were not intimidated at all. They, they were used to playing against the Iowa kids. Uh, you had some, you know, the Rachel Saunders, Iowa City West High plays for Creighton, um, you know, and, and she was kind of talking with Caitlin Clark a little bit. It was uh, it was interesting. But I think the bottom line is, and I know we'll talk about the men, John, it's about making shots, right? And Iowa yeah. didn't make shots. The men didn't make shots. The women didn't make shots, and they and they lost. I mean, it's, maybe that's the you know the most simplest way to put it. And and obviously there are parts of the game that go into getting good shots and, and hitting shots, but both just pick the wrong time to not shoot the ball well. And this is kind of cliche because I can say it pretty much every year, but if you look at both those games, if you had that as a best of three series, the best of five series, Iowa clearly is the better team in both cases, men's and women's. They're certainly the better team than Richmond, you know, and certainly the better team from Creighton. And you look at the competition even with Creighton, you know, playing in the Big East, that has gotten better with UConn being in that conference, but still not a women's basketball power. And Richmond, same thing in the Atlantic 10. You get some pretty good competition, but not a men's basketball power there. You know, but it goes down to, okay, how do you show up that day? And, you know, I think it probably also helped Creighton to have an Iowa transfer who has practiced many times in Carver Hawkeye and knows that team really well, knows how their coach really well, what they might do at certain points. And I think that's another factor. Yeah. Lauren Jensen, uh, again, she was, she was great. Um, and again, the intimidation factor, I think, I think sometimes, especially on the women's side where you have the tops, you know, the top four seeds hosting, that can be an intimidating environment. Um, and it was loud. It was, I, I said this on my mailbag podcast yesterday. I'm not good at like quantifying what is the loudest environment, but the other day, Sunday, it was as loud as I heard for men's basketball when it was full this year wrestling. I mean, it was loud and to Creighton's credit, it did not flinch. It, it just any run, especially at the end of the game, when Iowa was making a run and it was like, all right, the, you know, the, the, the stars are going to align here and everything's going to be normal. And uh, they, they met that challenge and, you know, were not intimidated at all. And I thought, you know, Lisa drew up a great play at the end of that game. It was either going to go to Clark or Cesano. Obviously Creighton's not going to let Clark beat him. Um, and Susano got a really clean look, a look that she makes, which she shoot almost 70% from the floor. Most times she got a really clean look and it just, just didn't go in. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of the big 10 tournament games where, you know, I was joking to Bluter about how, 
like it was something like 13 for 18 or something. I could actually pull up the exact number here that, you know, Monica only shot, let's see. Oh yeah. She only shot 13 for 18 against Indiana as if only that <laughs> because she's been so efficient. Yeah. So on paper, you would have thought that would have probably been a pretty good chance there, but you know, also, sometimes the shots fall and sometimes they don't. I also, I know and we probably should address the, you know, Lisa was not happy with the officiating after the game. And you don't hear coaches often come out and vocalize that in a press conference. Now, because they don't want to lose money. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes they can be fined for that. I haven't heard anything about her being fined. And I don't think she was overly critical of the, the officials in that game. It was more of how the game was called. And I'm, I, I don't watch a ton of women's basketball. I watch Iowa pretty much. So I don't know. I don't think I could speak with any type of expertise on how games are called during the regular season, but that was her beef that the games during the regular season and the big 10 tournament, that game was called differently. And again, sitting courtside, it was physical. There were bodies flying all over the place. I will say though, that it was called consistently both ways. They were not, they, both teams were allowed to play really physical. And I think Creighton adjusted to that better than Iowa did. And to Lisa's credit, she did have, as the kids say, granted, I say it as somebody in my 20s, I don't have to say as the kids say, but she did have the receipts on it and had the numbers for how many fouls usually are called in the game and how many were called there. So to her credit, she had those numbers, which, you know, is a pretty stark difference. Yeah, and it was. And, um, you know, I think it got to particularly Caitlin a little bit, who um, I think is probably used to, for lack of a better term, some star treatment. Um, the, and, and it's just, it's natural in all sports, right? That, you know, the, the, the really good players get the benefit of the doubt. And she really didn't get that on Sunday. And she was getting beat up pretty good. I mean, even when the Fowlers were called, she was absorbing some big hits. I mean, like knock to the ground type hits. And I think there may have been a cumulative effect because she had a really good look late where she didn't get hit as hard and she did, wasn't able to play through the, the contact. And um, again, it's, you know, as you said, one game scenario, if, if you know, if, if everything breaks a certain way and you're on the wrong end of the way those things break, it's going to be a tough day putting the madness in March madness. And I think especially with this women's basketball team, they were a team that were going to be reliant on who they were playing where, you know, the big physical SEC teams probably are not as good of a matchup. That's where, you know, I was kind of looking maybe a little too far ahead at that South Carolina game is okay. That could be a tough team matchup wise. And you see, even when it's not quite as physical of a team, even Creighton, when they call it more physical, that really goes against Iowa. So I think, though, probably people are ready to file away the Iowa winter sports after that kind of rough week. Although, you know, there were plenty of positive moments there in March where, okay, a Big Ten tournament title for both teams, you know, that's a moment to embrace. And it's something that you're going to have banners up in Carver Hawkeye for. Yeah, it's interesting conversation. I've conversed with people on social media and in person on this. You, how do you view a season? Like I've been asked that before. Like, what what do you remember about a year? Uh, is it just that finish? Is it things you know highlights that happen during the season? Um, and it's to me, it's up to each individual how he or she wants to remember the season. But you just take what happened. Um, you know, even if you go back to football, how good of a season football, 10 and two is a really good regular season, but then you've got the big 10 championship game. And then you've got coming up short against Kentucky in the capital one bowl. You've got for the men and women in basketball, you've got them winning their conference tournaments. That's a really big deal. But then you, then are people going to remember what happened 
in, in the NCAA tournament and not remember those other things. And, and how do you weigh what those memories are going to be? Similarly with wrestling, Alex Marinelli wins a Big Ten championship, a four-time Big Ten champion, but then doesn't do as well in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, is that the lasting memory? It's, it's interesting. And I, I think it is up to each individual how he or she wants to remember it. Yeah, and I think in kind of all three winter sports cases, for the half glass full crowd, there are things to point to with your mentioning Marinelli in wrestling. For men's and women's basketball, you have the tournament titles. For women's basketball, you have all the Clark logo threes, all that. And then the half glass empty kind of people can point to, well, when it counts in the NCAA tournament, neither team got it done. And I understand the frustration, particularly on the men's side, when they've had some really talented teams, they had Luca Garza, you know, they've had Keegan Murray and to not get that sweet 16 in the Fran McCaffrey era, not since I think it was, I was one year old was the last time that Iowa men that makes me it. feel old because <laughs> <laughs> I actually covered that team in 1999, <laughs> Tom Davis's last year. Yeah. And I think I, I wrote about this after um, the big 10 tournament when Iowa won. And I, I kind of was like, I don't know if I should write this column about, you know, this, this team having a chance to cement its legacy as the first one to get to the sweet 16 since that 99 team. And I remember having that feeling in 2006, I was in Detroit when, when they lost to Northwestern state. Um, and then, you know, I was out in Seattle and in Brooklyn and all the times where they, you know, had a chance maybe to get to that sweet 16. Unfortunately, the pandemic, I think, uh, took away one good, really good opportunity in 2000, you know, the 2020 season when the tournament was canceled who knows maybe that team gets a good matchup and is able to get through um but unfortunately these teams and i'm not sure that these individual players feel the pressure of history but it's there it's palpable that you know here we go again are we is lucy going to pull the football away again <laughs> and, and charlie brown fall flat in his back and it happened again and i I sense there's some type of like almost a numbness to it now, like here we go again. And it's unfortunate. And I, I think that kind of weighs on the program probably more than the individual players, but each year that you go without breaking the drought, that pressure becomes a little bit more. Yeah. And, you know, I think the frustration there for fans can add up when you have the talent and, the postseason results for one reason or another just haven't quite been there yet. And this would have been a really good opportunity to do it. So it's going to get a little harder to do that in 2023, but you never know. It's kind of incredible where sometimes the teams that on paper do not have the best talent are the ones that maybe get the favorable draw, you know, to talk about Iowa state, for example, you know, the team that was an 11 seed, the team that had a rough Big 12 stretch, you could say, to say the least, that Big 12 tournament ended terribly for them. They're the ones who end up in a Sweet 16. So, you know, off to next year. Yeah, and that often, that's part of the equation as well. The Iowa fans, you know, sitting here this week and watching the Iowa State programs in the Sweet 16, and the success that Iowa State's had through the years in basketball compared to what Iowa's had uh, in the last couple decades, quarter century, however you want to frame it. Um, from the men's perspective, it's kind of the, if we like wrap up the, those three sports and look to next year, the wrestling is going to be really different because you, you lose a ton of guys that have been around forever. Yeah. The men's basketball, you're going to lose Bohannon. Keegan's going to go to the NBA you're still going to have a decent foundation there on which to build. And you still have a chance to have a pretty good season. The women have everybody back and people oh, yeah. can look at that and say, all right, we, you know, we learned our lesson, you know, that we're, we're ready to take the next step next year. So it's interesting, the dynamic of the women, the men's basketball and then wrestling, how you have kind of one team that's going to look exactly the same one that's going to look 
a lot the same, but misses going to be missing at least two big components. And that one that's going to look completely different. Oh yeah. It's kind of wild with that. <laughs> and that's the, you know, I tweeted about it after the women's basketball loss that that's the silver lining for women's basketball is right now, barring anything, the transfer portal, I feel like I have to put that asterisk yeah. on everything, you know, they're going to have pretty much everybody back. And you have this experience build off of, you know, I'm sure it'll be kind of something that will kind of, they'll have some time to reflect a little bit on this season and they get another chance, which you usually don't get. So it's going to be a special opportunity there. Yeah, no question. And the, then the one uh, aspect of that, that you wonder about, how do you deal with that pressure? Because they're going to be top 10 at least, if, if not higher, coming into next year based on what they have coming back. Oh, yeah. And that can be a bullseye there. Yep. So, And you saw at the beginning of this year how you had the really high expectations at the beginning. And then it's kind of a valley where the COVID stretch really didn't help. You know, if that COVID stretch doesn't happen, you wonder, yeah. okay, what could have been different? Um, are they a one seed potentially if mm -hmm. that COVID stretch doesn't happen? So you have that. So you get through that and then, yeah, they eventually kind of got back up, but it's tough with those expectations. So we'll see. But we also have a lot of football stuff to talk about now with spring football starting up and haven't heard yet from Kurt Ferentz as we record this, but we'll hear from him soon on this. But kind of the big news being Cody Ince and Elijah Yelverton leaving the program. Obviously, the latter did not play a ton, but Ince was a really significant factor there. Started in 10 games. As I was kind of first looking after the Citrus Bowl at, okay, what's this 2022 team going to look like? I thought Ince was going to be a pretty big part of it. So now it's a little bit back to the drawing board at another of those positions because now you've got two kind of interior spots with a little bit of an unknown, I'd say, between not having Ince, not having Linderbaum. Yeah, the, the, and I'll be interested to hear what Kirk says today if it's it, – it, I assume injuries played into this at some point. The kid played through a lot the last few years and really it, it wasn't able to play at full strength. And I think that can get into your head mentally as well. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm interested to see, see what type of uh, impact that had, but yeah, I agree with you. He's, he's a guy that can play center guard or tackle. And what Iowa does as most of the people listening know is you try to find the best guys and, put those puzzle pieces together. And when you have a guy like Ince who can play all the positions, it helps you because you can slide him wherever and, and put, you know, the guys around him that are best suited to play their spots where they may not be as versatile. So not having him is, is a big deal. And then obviously Linderbaum, I think with that center position, John, you look for who's going to, obviously who's going to be the, the best replacement knowing he's not going to come close to living up to what Linderbaum can do, but you just don't want the, the drop off to be precipitous. You want it to at least have somebody there. That's, that's at minimum competent and hopefully gets better as the season goes on. Yeah. And the thing is before we heard about the ins departure, I thought there's a chance that Iowa's offensive line could be better because you have the more experience at other spots. Connor Colby isn't going to be in the position anymore. And I thought he did as good as somebody could ask for, considering the circumstances. But he was still going from in fall 2020 playing high school football at Cedar Rapids Kennedy to 2021 playing in a Big Ten championship game against Michigan. That's a tough, that's a tough progression there. So, you know, I think it helps that you have the experience at the other spots that, as you said, just kind of getting that serviceable level at center, I think works. You don't need to have, obviously you wouldn't mind having it, but you don't need to have that all pro best center in college football by a wide margin. They have a good year. 
Yes. And I think you hope that, you know, that the saying of, you know, the sum of the parts or, the, you know, the whole's greater than the sum of the parts and you lose a guy like Linderbaum, you know, you're losing your best offensive lineman, but can those guys come back that are coming back that got experience, take their games to the, to another level. And, and, and I think sometimes we forget about that, John, that these are college kids. These are guys that develop. These are guys that get better year to year. It's you're not looking at who the, who the you know given player was last year and how he performed. You're looking at how he can perform based on another offseason. And like you said, I think Cole, I think Mason Richmond had it, given that he was a redshirt freshman starting at the, you know, arguably the, the hardest part on the hardest position on the offensive line. I think he held up really well. He dealt oh, with yeah. some injuries late, but I, I really like his potential. Justin Britt is a guy who hasn't been able to stay healthy, but it was a guy that they considered playing as a true freshman. So the, you know, the, the foundation is there for a lot of these guys. Bo Stevens is a guy I've heard good things about Ellsbury's and David Koff came in highly. Ran. I think, what we're seeing now on the depth chart, and this is probably a good time to, to put this caveat in there, don't <laughs> this is not written in pen. And no. there's going to be – I think the competition on the offensive line is going to be really intriguing. Yeah. You know, this is pencil, like, lightly in pencil. It's not <laughs> yes. like the, you know, I can write this even firm in pencil. This is the, yes. okay, I'm probably going to need to erase this three times, like that level of pencil. So, and you were mentioning Justin Britt, he, you know, might have a little more of an opportunity this year too. Now that Ince is out, he could step in. So right now at left guard, he's the, with again, that asterisk, he's the projected starter right now. So right now, if you have just based on who they currently have starting Richmond, Britt, Ellsbury at center, Colby, Plum as your offensive line in 2022, you know, you'd probably feel pretty good about that group. Yeah. I'm interested to see a guy like Jack Plama that has, you know, he, and it's not, you know, uh, it would not be uh, a break, a breakthrough that a guy his senior year gets it and just takes off and he could be that guy. And that would be huge because right tackle was an inconsistent position last year for Iowa. Really need to sure that up. And if if DeYoung and Plum, if one of those guys can't take that step to be to consistency that they lacked last year, then maybe you have to look at a Connor Colby kicking out there or moving David Koff across the line to right tackle, or one of those younger guys. So when we talk about competition on the offensive line, it's not only uh, you know, the, the whole, but how those guys can move around. And they there are versatile guys. Colby, I think, can be a tackle. Mm -hmm. um, right now, I think they, they look at him as guard, but he is a guy that could certainly kick out. He played tackle in high school. He's a very athletic kid. Um, so even guys that maybe not listed at a position, kind of like we thought Plum had the, you know, had the head, had the lead going into last year at left tackle, and then Richmond emerged. Keep, you can keep an eye on guys that maybe listed inside now that could kick outside or, or the other way around. Yeah. So it's, yeah, again, in pencil. And I think it's going to be really interesting because on the offense, I think offensive line is the number two question mark. Yeah. Obviously, number one being quarterback. But you look at it, you're probably not going to see a dramatically different Iowa offense based on all indicators that we've heard so far that Iowa really believes in overall their philosophy that, you know, you hear opposing coaches joke about the last time they've seen an offense like this is inside the five yard line. Iowa believes in it. You know, there are people listening to this who are like, yes, that's a great strategy. And I'm sure there are people listening to this who are like, why in the world are we doing this? But, you know, that's what they are going to stick to. And having a good offensive line is a key part of that. Yeah, no question. And as we talked about, there was there were injuries. There, there was inexperience. A lot of factors last year. Um, eventually, they got to the point where, okay, the heck with it. We're just going to run behind Linderbaum. <laughs> just go <laughs> let him pound people up the middle. And it worked late in the season. Oh, yeah. They need they need more consistency along the front. And we've talked about guys that 
have gotten experience now and hopefully can take the next step and then gel as a unit. You're talking about zone blocking schemes. You need guys that kind of can move together. It's like a ballet or, you know, what, you know, how, whatever analogy you want to use, they, they have to move in conjunction with each other and gel. And that's a huge, that's going to be a huge part of this time of year, John is oh, yeah. football, those practices, bringing these guys together and getting them to play as a unit. And then switching gears from that number two question mark to number one question mark on offense, quarterbacks, everyone's favorite topic of conversation. Petrus listed as the number one quarterback, Padilla number two, Labus number three. I think it's be interesting at this position, particularly because of the coaching change at quarterback, where I kind of had one set of expectations if Ken O'Keefe was still going to be quarterback's coach. And then that kind of gets thrown out the window. And I think it's important for Brian Ferentz to spend some time this offseason learning from some of kind of the quarterback gurus. And I think if he does that, that can help because obviously he hasn't coached quarterbacks at a specific level, obviously offensive coordinator, you're coaching everybody on the offense, but he hasn't had specific quarterback experience yet. So I think that's to me kind of the really the X factor here is okay. That move could work out really well or really poorly with Brian Ferentz moving to quarterbacks. If it works out really well, you know, the upside is there. I agree. And again, I, I would, you know, caution people to, to not say, okay, Spencer Petrus last year is going to be what Spencer Petrus looks like this spring or this coming season. Guys can get better. And I know there's the narrative out there that Iowa quarterbacks regress as their careers go on. There probably have been guys that do that. It's not as stark, I think, as the narrative would suggest, but hopefully all three of these guys continue to get better and push each other. And as you said, John, the coaches are looking through a different lens now, where as Ken O'Keefe had his lens on what he was looking for. Now you have Brian and Kirk kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're sizing down. You had three people involved. Now you have two people involved and hopefully that can streamline things and you can get the, the negative would that be is you're losing a guy who was really experienced at coaching quarterbacks. So you have to hope that this uh, strategy works, that you're streamlining things, you're having less voices in there. Brian, as you said, can learn from quarterback gurus, learn from what Ken O'Keefe taught him the last five years, still have Ken around to, yeah, to lean on when, when he totally needs leaving. No, he's he now gets the coffee and donuts for everybody. Him and Reese Morgan take turns. They alternate days now over there. But it's <laughs> nice to have those guys as, as you know, in advisory positions. You've got Don Patterson, another guy who was head coach that's over there and does analytics. You have a lot of guys behind the scenes that can help. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to how it has Brian grown as an offensive coordinator and in his understanding of quarterback play and what is needed from that position. Um, and then how these quarterbacks have developed and Ken, you know, I, I go back to 2013, 2014. I do think that CJ Beathard going into 2013 was at least a noticeable difference behind Jake Rudolph, but then he caught him and passed him. So does that happen here? Does Padilla catch um, Petrus and move by him? Does Labus catch both of them and pass them? That's it really going to be going to be an interesting spring and summer to see what happens. And I think a thing to add on to the point of having that one less voice is nowadays, and I think some people recognize this, but I'm not sure if all readers kind of have a full or listeners have a full grasp of this, that pretty much every quarterback at this level now has their own private coach who they're working with in the off season that, you know, has had, a ton of experience training quarterbacks. Uh, Padilla has Tim Jenkins over in Colorado. Spencer Petrus has Tony Rassiope in out in Jersey. And Rassiope was the one who worked with Pickett 
in this year's draft class, who's projected to go number one, albeit in a relatively weak quarterback class, but still going number one. So among quarterbacks, I should say, just make that clear. So <laughs> you, yeah, not number one overall. <laughs> so big distinction there. Yes. But, you know, I think that helps too, that you have already some of on the more specific technique things You've got those voices already in these kids' ears. So now you can look a little more at a streamlined offense. But, you know, and Labus is going to be an interesting um, person, too, because toward the end of the season, we were hearing really good things about him. So, and players kind of raved about what he did on the scout team. Um, I think it was Merriweather who said, or who I think made kind of the comparison to a couple Mahomes-style throws that he even pulled off. So that's another interesting thing. And to have Labus on the depth chart that is mostly too deep, to have three deep at that position, I think by itself says a statement that, hey, at least publicly, hey, we want a quarterback competition here. Yeah, one thing will be interesting is, you know, basically the depth chart is what it was in January. You know, Petrus was, but Labus was not on the physical depth chart that we see now. But how did the reps get broken up here in the spring? Is, you know, is it equal? Uh, You know, do Pedia and Petrus get more than Labus? I wonder how much of a look they give him. You kind of, you know, the other guys have had experience. Do you want the younger guy to get some more reps to, to really get a look at how? So that's really important uh, to see. And then the other thing, John, I think one of the talking points coming out of the bowl game was Padilla talking about how difficult it is to learn the system. Is there a way that they can simplify that a little bit for these guys in some way? Maybe that is the one less voice, whatever it is. I do think that's something that hopefully they're analyzing. How can you make it easier on the guy out there? Don't make it too complicated because that's, if you're overthinking things, it makes it harder for you to perform. Yeah. And I think Padilla said it's like a year and a half. It took him to fully learn the offense, which when you look at it, that's a tough learning curve there where, okay, if you need improvement at the quarterback position, okay, they arrive and now add one and a half years before they can really start producing. Well, that's a tough, that's a tough way to get quick results there. And other places. Especially when you consider that Labus has only been here since June. He hasn't even been here a year yet. Yeah. (laughs) So you look at, he's still in that year and a half clock. If it takes him that same timeline. So that's a little bit of a concern there. And other programs don't have that burden. And they've seen, frankly, more quarterback success in many cases. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I look forward to it. I, I, I don't look forward to it being beaten to death this offseason because this is everybody's – this is what the conversation is going to be. We started talking about the offensive line, and some people will talk about that. But I think this quarterback competition is going to be ultra-magnified. Um, but I think, and you you know these guys as well, um, they're equipped mentally to handle this, I think. They, they yeah. especially Padilla and, and Petrus, they've been in the fishbowl now for a couple of years. Um, so I think they'll be able to focus on what needs to be focused on and not worry about all this outside noise. Yeah, and especially Petrus, you look at the way he handled everything in 2021. You know, he was... You know, I think Padilla had the benefit of sometimes the backup quarterback is always the most popular person in the fan base. Petrus was really under the microscope and the way he handled it, you know, we gave the Duke Slater Golden Gavel Award to Kayvon Merriweather, very deserving. That's who I voted for. But Petrus also had a pretty good case for it. And also had Kayvon not been so great would have been a very good person to vote for because he handled it really well. And, you know, he takes some wisdom from Ted Lasso about being a goldfish. So I was kind of thinking to myself, as you were saying, fishbowl. Yeah. 
fishbowl in a couple ways. <laughs> so yeah. I think that helps that, okay, this is a guy who has seen everything. Um, he, you know, was really patient, frankly, with the fan base as they're ready to throw up the pitchforks. Um, you know, he let off a little bit of that frustration after the Citrus Bowl, very understandably. Yeah. And I think he had a good message that's important to remind everybody about, you know, remember that he's a human being. So, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to tweet at people. So, yeah, he's used to it, though. Padilla got, he had to get used to it. So he didn't have much of a choice. And they're good friends too. So I think they're supportive oh, yeah. of each other, which really helps. And I'm sure they're, I know they um, won't be like, let's, let's ignore the young guy and not help. They'll, they want what's best for the team and they're oh, going to yeah. help Joey Labus as much as they can. And uh, that's, that's really the environment you want. So ho- hopefully the environment allows the best guy to emerge. And you look at, you were mentioning the Petrus Padilla friendship. One of the first nights, I can't remember if it was the first or the second night, the players had some free time in Orlando. I believe it was the second night that they were there. First full day there. You know, the players had some free time. I saw a bunch of them on International Drive that ended up at Shake Shack. So, you know, gotta get the essentials there. Um, But you know, of all the people that they could have hung out with, Peters and Pedia just had dinner themselves. So, you know, that, um, and I was talking to Padilla about it after their, one of their practices, and he gave a little bit of um, a hard time to Petrus about not being able to handle the spice of that meal. <laughs> so that tells you, though, they're pretty good friends. And that's, yeah. And I also think the fact that Alex stayed around, because if you look at how the season ended, he got pulled against Nebraska, played very, you know, what didn't really, until things got out of hand, didn't really get in in the Big Ten championship game, uh, was clearly the the number two guy at the Capital One Bowl. Would have been very, I don't want to say easy, because I think that's sometimes dismissive, but you would have understood had he looked for another opportunity. Oh, yeah. he believes enough in himself and the chance he will be afforded by the coaches to come back and compete with his friend. And I think that says a lot. Yeah. And you look at the numbers of how often when you have two quarterbacks who both got some chances to play in games at the levels that Petrus and Padilla played this year, well, this past year now, it's weird now saying last year, I guess. I so time goes by fast. But you look at it when you have two quarterbacks who play as often as Petrus and Padilla did in one season, it's at least in the Big Ten, when I was doing that number crunching before the bowl game, it's really rare for both quarterbacks to stay. And that's what's happening. So, yeah, no, to their credit. So it'll be interesting. You know, I think the, to see if both stay into the fall. I, yeah. I get the sense that they will, um, but you know, you don't know how this, what's going to, how, what the feelings are going to be after going through spring ball. And the thing is, Iowa's been a little bit immune to it, but the transfer portal is a wild world, and really across college football, there should be that second kind of pickup of transfer activity after somebody thought that they might be by the end of spring ball, the number two person at a position and said they're the number four yep. or they thought they were the starter and said they're the number three. Yeah. They're going to maybe want to take their talents elsewhere, which is dangerous right now because the transfer portal is so deep right now that I feel like it's going to end up being a game of musical chairs where yeah, it's it's the clock is different too right at each school Iowa had the fewest guys leave in the fall of the Big Ten teams but maybe it moves up higher after the spring because if you look at it and you know this John when you're looking at the guys that are on the roster there are a lot of open opportunities right now that guys are competing for and as you said the guys competing I'm going to be the starter I'm going to be number two on the depth chart oh no after spring I'm four or five on the depth chart 
that changes things. Oh, yeah. You know, it will be an interesting few months. And I think defense is kind of a totally different storyline than the offense this year because defense, you look at, there's a lot of experience coming back. The secondary will look a little different because obviously you use Hankins, you use Kerner, you have some departures there. So you lose Belton. How could I forget about Dean Belton, the leader in interceptions this past year. So you're going to have some different bases there. But for the most part, there were still players who were contributing. You have players like Jamari Harris, who were kind of thrown in because of injuries last year. That would have maybe been more of a question mark had that not happened, had Hankins not had the season-ending injury. So maybe that would be a little different. But instead, I look at all those starters and... Obviously, Quinn Schulte didn't get a ton of time at free safety, but he got some. Mm-hmm. But pretty much everywhere else, you look at those starters and you say, okay, yeah, you'd feel pretty good about them. Yeah, and again, I think, as you pointed out, there's depth there and there's experience depth. That's the position where I'm looking at and saying, all right, how is this going to shake out and where are guys? Because once you get into your – second particularly your third year and you're not advancing then you maybe question okay what where what is my path to playing time uh, you know I can help on special teams but you know if I'm a Reggie Brace or an AJ Lawson or Sebastian Castro you know you go down and look they've got guys now that are two three years in back there that have kind of helped on special teams and worked their way up but how is all that going to shake out and Riley Moss coming back great for Iowa but there were guys probably looking at that thinking he's going to go to the NFL. That position is going to be open. And now it's not. And you've got, you know, a, a pretty good recruit coming in that plays in the secondary, that in-state guy. That, Fairly that could... good <laughs> guy. I think his name is Xavier Wampa. If he you know, jumps. A few people might have heard of him. If he ends up jumping some of these guys, which he certainly could, I mean, then you – then you know, maybe some of these guys reevaluate, you know, where they are. You've got, you know, you mentioned Quinn Schulte um, and, you know, Terry Roberts is still in the mix. Um, Terry Roberts is probably one of the best backup cornerbacks in the big 10, if not nickel guy, dime guy. Yeah. Guy you can use. And I, he's, he's, he's really, he's going to be a very valuable part of that second, but where does Cooper Dijon fit? You know, there's another guy who's really highly regarded. So it's a numbers game back there. And I think that's one of the positions you look at this spring to see how it sorts itself out. And there's a potential maybe to have some attrition at that position. Maybe I'm not saying there will be, but that, that it's loaded back there. There are a lot of really good players. Oh yeah. And obviously Wampo was not on this too deep, but obviously he hasn't practiced either. So I think that will be an interesting thing to see. It was after. funny. It was funny. I asked uh, Belton about this uh, uh, for the NFL Pro Day. I was like, who's going to be the cash now? And he's like, well, you know, Sebastian Castro backed me up last year. He's been really good. Jamari Harris has played it and been really good. And then he said, and, oh, yeah, there's a true freshman coming in that I think has a chance. And I'm <laughs> like, ah, that's telling when they haven't even practiced yet. Yeah, you know, no (laughs) practice snaps and already Xavier's in the conversation. And obviously when you get a five-star recruit, that's, yeah, you understand. Special talent, special talent. And, you know, those don't come through here very often. You don't see the AJ Epinesa's, Tristan Wirth types, but Xavier's in that, in that conversation. Oh yeah. So it'll be interesting. I'm excited to see what he does in spring practice. So we'll get to see next week, the first 30 minutes. And then obviously they'll be a little more open at the end with that April 23rd, fully open practice. That'll be a more public event. So that'll be a, that'll be an interesting situation to see. And I think on defensive line, you've got a lot of experience coming back. Obviously Ben Valkenberg has gone pro. Well, he had to go pro. He ran out of eligibility. (laughs) Already completed his master's. Impressive uh, young man. He's an impressive dude. 
Yeah. Like, was talking to Halas during the season about wanting to work in the State Department. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's impressive. I wasn't thinking that big. I'm still not thinking that big. <laughs> so, but you got Joe Evans there at that position. You've got Deontay Craig. You've got some options there that played already. Obviously, defensive line, you see a lot of rotating at that position. So the people who are going to fit in there aren't totally shockers there. And then at the interior, you've got Lucas Van Ness, who's a second teamer despite having a spectacular redshirt freshman year. So you've got a lot of talent there. Yeah, I thought Logan Lee emerged, too, as the season went on. He was one of those guys we talked earlier in the pod about guys developing. They can do it within a season, too. And I thought he really did. I thought Noah Shannon was solid. Van Ness. I think the defensive tackle spot, and that maybe um, led maybe to considering moving Logan Jones, who we didn't talk about moving him over to center, is that depth of defensive tackle. Because Logan Jones oh, – yeah. I really like, I watched him at a camp when he was, I think it was before his junior year in Chicago, it was the Under Armour camp and he was competing with all the guys. And I'm like, man, this kid's got a chance. And Iowa maybe had just offered then or was about to offer. Um, and, and just the leverage, he, he's a typical Iowa guy. And uh, oh, yeah. I'll be interested to see how he does at center. But I think the question on defensive line, John, is where does the quarterback pressure come from? Mm-hmm. You know, Van Ness was really that guy last year. Is there, Are there guys there? Um, Van Valkenburg, I should say. He was the guy last year on that. So is it Joe Evans? Is it Deontay Craig? You know, can Wagoner be more consistent there? Max Newellen's a guy we don't really know about yet. He's a redshirt freshman from Urbandale. Um, interesting. I mean, I have a lot of faith in, in Jay Neiman and, and Kelvin Bell, particularly in developing defensive line. We've seen it enough now that they've been able to do that, but the pressure from the outside is really for me what I'll be one of those areas I'll be looking at on on April 23rd. And then I think the one area where I don't have really any questions is linebacker. Yeah. Like (laughs) you've got, you've got Campbell coming back. He never wants to leave the field. You've got Seth Benson who, you know, does not look like Campbell in terms of Campbell looking like he came out of a war zone when he's done with practice or done with a game and meeting with media and he's got like the over under on like scabs or something are probably two or three. (laughs) So, but still a guy who's on the field all the time, really durable guy. And then you've got Justin Jacobs back too. So that you're probably not worried about. You're not worried about punter with Tory Taylor you're not worried about punt and kick returns with Charlie Jones. It'd be interesting to see who maybe becomes that heir apparent on the return duties because obviously Jones won't be here forever after next year he's gone. So that'll be interesting. Um, and then kicker will be a little interesting too because you've got a little bit of competition there potentially. I think Aaron Blom is going to probably get that one but drew stevens the true freshman has you know it's hard to tell because we see these social media clips and it's hard to judge too much off that but somebody who certainly has a lot of talent yeah and he turned down some scholarships to come here and walk on and pay out of state tuition and uh he he you know he's highly regarded and i think you know, it'll be interesting because I think this is the, you know, we talk about how long certain competitions will last at quarterback at you know, at center, maybe some positions around the field. You'll say, okay, how long is the, the competition for the starting spot going to last? Kicker's probably going to go through summer camp because they chart those things. And my guess is these guys are probably going to perform pretty close, kind of like, uh, Keith Duncan and Caleb Shudak did two years ago and, and Duncan just edged him out. So, and, it, and, and I think you want that. You want to put these oh, yeah. guys in as many competitive situations as you can. So April 23rd will be an opportunity kids day, whenever you can put them in front of a crowd, even if it's not the 70,000 and see how that perform, that certainly factors in as well. Yeah. So got a fun spring with plenty of interesting storylines ahead. Yeah, no question. Always look forward to spring football. 
And uh, I always tell this story. I don't always tell this story. I've told <laughs> this story. Um, it was Kirk Ferentz's first spring practice, and there wasn't anybody, hardly anybody came out to Kinnick. It was an open practice. <laughs> and the band was there. <laughs> So the band's playing and playing and playing, and then the practices are going on and on and on. So <laughs> eventually all of the band left except for um, the tubas, and they stayed towards the end of practice, and they were playing the fight song. And that was one of the things that I always remembered in my mind. Like, this was like 99 or whatever it was, 99, yeah, 98 and the 99. Uh, and, and I think back to that, and I think back to all the various weather situations we've had through the years in with that April, like March, April in Iowa, you know, <laughs> upper Midwest, what type of weather we get. I've been out there, you know, in April where we've been in t-shirts and I've been out there before we've been in like heavy jackets. So I'm always interested <laughs> to see what the weather is going to be for the spring game. And I got like really lucky with year one on the beat with weather in the fall. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, is this going to average out in the spring? Like, is this going to be like a terrible <laughs> spring to make up for it after like, I was not wearing a jacket pregame um, on the field in Nebraska. I know. Like, where that was what, November 26th, probably. Yeah. 26. So like, is it going to be that? Again, it'll, be it... it'll be nice though. Just, you know, especially after COVID for fans to get out there on April 23rd and get a chance to look at this team and, um, you know, fewer restrictions and things like that. I think we're getting back towards what the new normal will be and it's, yeah, it'll be nice. And, and, you know, this will be the second year in a row where um, they've had a normal off season. So ho hopefully for a program that Iowa, that is a developmental program, you'll see some even more progress with some of these guys that are maybe in their second and third years because they missed all of that time in development. Maybe some of these guys really take off this spring. So it'll be, we got a month or so before, actually exactly a month as we record this before that open practice. So it'll be interesting to watch to say the least. Rob, thanks for joining me. Yeah, happy to be with you, John, anytime. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into another episode of the Hawk Off the Press podcast. I'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, we will talk Hawks later. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.